When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right. Welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis, as always, joined by Drew Lerner. If you have not already, please subscribe to the SMW podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere that you get podcasts. Let's go ahead and jump right in, as we always do, and start talking about the NBA playoffs. We now have the official finals matchup of Heat Nuggets. Now, of course, we knew that was going to be the finals matchup last week. But in between last week and this week, the Boston Celtics reeled off three straight wins to take a 3-0 series to the maximum Game 7. Then they rolled over and died in Game 7. We get Heat Nuggets anyway. But there is great value to what the Celtics did for the NBA because ultimately the biggest problem for the NBA as of last week was the fact that the conference finals was going to end at the minimum number of games. Two sweeps. Instead, you get one sweep, but you get the other one that goes the maximum. All told, 11 conference final games were played. Last year, 12. That is more than survivable. So for the NBA, granted, I'm, I'm sure the league had its hopes up, expecting the Celtics to win. Had the Celtics won, you would have had a tremendous storyline. First team to ever come back from 3-0 down. Celtics have home court advantage against Denver. Theoretically, if the Boston Celtics could win a game at home, the home court advantage would help make that a competitive series, right? As it is, it's more likely than not that Denver will win this finals. They probably would have beaten Boston anyway, but because Denver doesn't have the home court advantage, it'll be a very conventional series. Denver probably takes the first two at home, maybe even takes the first three. Miami gets a token game, game three or game four. Denver finishes it off in five. I hope I'm wrong, but that is what I would expect. You know, that's unfortunate for the league, but at least they got those extra conference final games in. And and that's not a small thing because just getting six and seven, that game seven, I know it was a blowout, probably the most watched game of the playoffs. We'll see when the ratings come out tomorrow. That alone is going to be able to keep this postseason above last year's levels, even with a four game finals that is on par with the bubble. So I did the math, and it's not perfect math because all Nielsen averages are weighted by telecast duration. I did not weight this average. But just, you know, quick, rough math. Because Assuming that Game 6 and 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals were on par with last year, same teams, and then assuming that Nuggets Heat only goes four games and each game has exactly the same audience as Heat Lakers in the bubble, which is not going to happen. 
but I'm just giving a worst case scenario. I uh, did the math. The average comes out to about 4.77 million viewers. Last year's average, the official average weighted by telecast duration was 4.77 million. The exact same. Not a, you know, not apples to apples, obviously, because again, not weighted. But um, I'm going to say it's a decent borderline lock that the viewership will be up for the playoffs, even with a really bad finals. And I mean, if you can come out of an NBA finals between Denver and Miami and still be able to say that you had your most watched postseason, and I think it would be a five-year high. I mean, that's a win for the NBA. And I, I, I don't think that Heat Nuggets will be on par with the bubble. I just use that as the worst case scenario situation. So I think if you're the NBA, uh, you know, you're grateful that the Celtics, you know, had a, a week of competence there. Uh, and it would have been nice, certainly, to to get Boston in there, but uh, no disrespect to Miami. They're a great team, and uh, we'll see. Maybe they can shock a few people, get a win on the road. Nobody thought they'd beat Boston. I don't really think anybody thought they'd beat Boston, and uh, they should have probably swept Boston. So we'll see what they can do. Uh, I, I'm skeptical that they can make it competitive, but, hey, people have been skeptical of the Heat all postseason long. All right, I'll bring in Drew. Yeah, I think I'm done making any prognostications on on this Heat team. I am interested, John. You brought up your your back of the napkin math there um, for kind of the overall ratings or viewership number that the NBA is looking at for this playoffs. Is that kind of what you think the league office and and television partners with the NBA are, are looking at when they're when they're examining like how successful a playoffs is, or is it more like where the peaks are, right? Like. What are the finals getting? Because that's obviously the most valuable inventory. Or what are the game sevens looking like? Because obviously those are going to get higher viewership. Is that overall number the most important? Or is it more of those um, marquee events? Well, that's a good question. Because the health of the NBA has been judged for years on the basis of the finals. So finals is what most people will write about when they write about NBA ratings. And in the Jordan era, that served the NBA just fine. The reality of the matter is you can have a strong playoffs into weak finals, right? Which is what's going to happen this year, more than likely. Uh, and uh, that hasn't happened often with the NBA. Maybe 2009, when the ratings were great, first three rounds, and then you know Orlando had to spoil the Kobe-LeBron finals, he didn't get a great rating for the finals. You know That's the year that comes to mind. But for the most part, or in baseball, the incredible ratings for the 03 playoffs, Cubs, uh, Marlins, Yankees, Red Sox, you want Cubs, Red Sox, you want Cubs, Yankees, well, you get Marlins, Yankees, right? And you get the Marlins winning the World Series in a year defined by Chicago and Boston. Uh, it happens. And I think ultimately the strength of the NBA, this is a TV deal where ABC is incidental. ABC is barely a part of this. And ABC has the finals. The success of this deal is what ESPN and Turner get throughout their regular season and playoffs. So... The NBA's health has been judged on the basis of the finals ratings probably too much. Not probably too much, but definitely too much. The reality of the matter is that for the league, you know, I would say this has been a very successful postseason. I would say the only negative is that so much of it can be attributed to LeBron James and Stephen Curry, neither of whom are going to be in the league in a few years. Um, but I, I think uh, the, the league, even with what's going to be a rough finals, I think this is a successful postseason. Yeah, what's interesting about uh, this 
upcoming final series is how the media has kind of become a, a narrative in and yeah. of itself. Um, you know, especially with what Mike Malone said last week after the Nuggets swept their series against the Lakers. Um, what, why do you think the NBA specifically, it seems like, to that ratings discourse kind of seems to cross over into the actual media narratives of the games? That, that seems to be unique to the NBA, in my view. Well, you know, the NBA has always been a league that has depended on stars. So this is a league where Michael Jordan made six finals in eight years. In one of the two years that Jordan wasn't there, the Knicks were there. In the other year, Shaq was there, right? Jordan retires, then the Knicks are there again. And then the Lakers are there for three years, right? I mean, it's it's a star-studded, big market kind of league. People believe that it is rigged. I think that's dumb, obviously. But I do think that the NBA, more often than not in its history, has gotten exactly the kind of matchup it wants, which is unusual. The NBA doesn't have a lot of Rockies-Giants finals, right? Or Royals-Giants, I should say. And this is between you know, Denver and Miami. This is the Royals-Giants NBA finals, basically. The NBA hasn't had to deal with that a lot. I think the NBA also, you know, has more whiners than is typical. <laughs> and I would uh, certainly put Mike Malone in that category. You can contrast the way that Mike Malone has handled uh, media criticism with the way that Eric Spolster has. You know, the constant complaining of Mike Malone contrasted with the cool detachment and disinterest of Eric Spolster. I know which approach I would prefer, certainly. The NBA has a lot of these teams like Denver that have a chip on their shoulder and a, a, a sense of being disrespected. There's always teams like this every year or few years, and they make it into the finals. And it's like, you didn't believe in us, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's the same tiresome nonsense that we've been hearing forever. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I can understand it to an extent because, you know, you want respect. But the reality of the matter is Denver is probably going to win this title. The ratings are going to be bad, and Mike Blone will probably be complaining about it. And, you know, nothing's going to change. I uh, had the occasion to be on a conference call earlier today uh, with ESPN, Jeff Van Gundy, and Mark Jackson, and I asked them about whether or not the league and the networks have a responsibility to get teams like Denver and Miami out in the open more often. Denver and Miami won ABC game each this season, both of those on Saturday afternoons, not the best time slots. In fact, the two least watched ABC games all season long and the two worst time slots. Miami had a 1 p.m. Saturday game on wildcard weekend. Denver had a 3 o'clock Saturday game a couple of weeks later, right? Uh, I asked Jeff Van Gundy, and he said flatly, no, the networks do not have any responsibility. I'll quote him directly from the transcript on ESPN's media site. Uh, their job is to make as much money as they can for their partners, so they're going to do what they think is in their best interest to capture the audience. I don't think it's on ESPN, ABC, or the league. Uh, I think their job is different than it is for the teams. The teams are trying to become as good as they can to win titles, and the broadcasting angle is to try to find games and matchups that attract the most customers and consumers. I don't look at it as they owe anybody anything. And, you know, that's exactly correct. Nobody is owed anything. You're really not even in this life, not just the NBA, just generally, you're not even owed respect. It's nice if you get it, but you're not owed it. And, um, you know, to see the way Denver has been kind of, uh, you know, sore winners uh, over, the, over the past few weeks because the Lakers get more publicity. 
you know, again, the Miami Heat aren't going to be doing that, and that's to their credit. Of course, the Heat, once upon a time when they had LeBron James, were the darlings. They certainly are not the darlings now. I don't think there was anybody uh, outside of Miami, uh, certainly in the NBA league offices, who wanted Miami to beat Boston. But, you know, they're there, and uh, hopefully it'll be a good series. Uh, I doubt that it will be. I don't think that they can compete with what Denver's got, but uh, if they can, I will say this. Seven games is all you need, and any matchup will do okay. Any matchup will do okay with seven games, right? Spurs Pistons in 2005, those numbers are not nearly as bad as they would have been because the game, the series went seven. And the very next year, Miami-Dallas didn't go seven. It was a higher-profile series, bigger stars. But guess what? It averaged maybe barely more viewers than Spurs Pistons did. So, you know, if, if it goes six or seven, then you can live with that. And, and more importantly, the least watched finals games, just like with the conference finals, are going to have a larger audience than anything else the NBA has. So the more of those games you get, even at a lower level than is typical, the better. If you have a seven-game finals that averages, you know, eight million viewers and a record low outside of the bubble, yeah, that's bad. But that's still seven extra audiences of 8 million viewers that you can add to the list. And ultimately, you know, you'll do well in, in that scenario because you banked enough viewership earlier in the playoffs, right? You know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to watch the highest profile players and teams. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not less of a fan because you want to watch the Lakers or the Warriors or the Celtics or the Sixers. Uh, and, uh, you know, the solution to that problem is to win enough titles that you become like them. You know, the Houston Rockets weren't some kind of great draw in the 90s when they first won in 94. You could see some of the ratings from like that 94 playoffs. Worse than the bubble for some of those Rockets-Jazz games in the conference finals on TNT, right? You know, the Rockets didn't become a draw until the next year when they were doing their title defense and their games were exciting. You know, you this is entertainment. You know, fundamental basketball is great for people who love basketball. Uh, but, you know, excitement is a real thing. There's nothing wrong with people wanting excitement. Denver so far this postseason, they won in five against Minnesota. They won in six against Phoenix, which was kind of entertaining. And they swept the Lakers. And even though it was a sweep, it was pretty close. You know, if Denver wants to get attention and media coverage and all that stuff, win a title this year. Win it in seven, ideally, and then come back next year and do it again. And the more that you are there, the more that you're a contender, the deeper playoff runs you make, uh, the more that people will be able to sample your play. And I'm going to quote Mark Jackson here, uh, and this is from the same question that I asked uh, earlier. Uh, if, you know, at the end of the day, if you're either one of these teams, be upset, but understand the business of basketball. If you want to be on TV, be one of the last two standing. That'll force them to put you on TV. Uh, which is, again, a better approach than whining about it like Mike Malone. An interesting part about uh, this upcoming finals is the change in tip-off times. Um, and, and then we can get into, you know, maybe some ratings predictions after we talk about this. Um, but the, the NBA has decided to move their tip-off times up a half an hour from 9 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. Of course, aside from the the Sunday tip-offs, which would be game two and seven, I believe, this season. What do you think that earlier tip-off time is going to do for viewership? Well, nothing. 
I mean, not in this finals. Uh, you know, look, it's a good thing to do, I guess. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's tough to stay up for these games. I mean, especially as you get older, you know, you hit your mid-30s, you can't stay up until, you know, I mean, you can, but it'll ruin your next day, right? So, especially as the TV audience gets older and older and older, you got to meet them where they are. Uh, frankly, even in the central time zone, you know, 7.30 p.m. start, or I guess 8 o'clock in, in past years instead of 9, you're still going to bed at around 10.30, 10.45. There's a lot of people that can't do that. You know what I mean? You look at the late night TV ratings one of these days. There's not a lot of people staying up for Stephen Colbert, right? So, you know, the reality of the matter is that it's inconvenient if the Lakers had advanced or the Warriors had, had, had made it deeper. Those would be 5.30 p.m. start times locally. That's really inconvenient. But, you know, it is what it is. You got you to gotta make a decision. You've got to cater to the West Coast audience or the East Coast audience. If you cater to the West Coast audience, you're going to start it later so that they're not having to come straight home from work. Basically, if you cater to the West Coast, you are uh, hurting your East Coast audience at the end of the game. If you cater to the East Coast, you're hurting your West Coast audience at the start of the game. So what are you going to value more? The East Coast audience at the end of the game that can't stay up, that's when your viewership is going to be peaking, the end of the game. Or your West Coast audience at the start of the game where, you know, the viewership isn't going to be that strong at the start of the game anyway. I think it makes sense to cater to the East Coast audience at the end of the game and, and make sure that people can stay up. Uh, because, you know, t the TV audience is getting grayer and grayer and grayer. And it is really difficult for people to stay awake. I mean, it's just, we're all human. The viewership for Game 7 of the World Series 2016, it did not peak in the final quarter hour. It peaked at around midnight. There were people out of the 50-odd million people that were watching it peak. This is pre-out of home, too. So who knows how many it really was. But, you know, out of that 50 million people who were watching it peak, some of them said, I got to go. This is going extra innings. I've got stuff to do. It's the Cubs winning the World Series. We're not going to see that happen again. Right. That's a Haley's Comet type event. And people still have to tap out and go to bed. It is what it is. We're dealing with humans for now. Maybe we'll get AI generated viewers down the line. That is interesting what you say, because, um, you know, the conventional wisdom I always thought was that people will stay up later because they're already invested in the game. The game might be close at the end uh, and they want to see it come to its conclusion. Right. And the other thing is the. The NBA kind of sports a younger demographic than than most other you know sports properties, right? They they definitely skew younger, and to me that means that you probably have an audience more willing to stay up later than, as you said, the you know the graying audience of of most of cable television or just you know television in general. Um, so to me, it was a bit perplexing that they actually decided to move it up, although. As someone living on the East Coast, you know, I couldn't be more happy about it because I am one of those people where, you know, if it goes past a certain time, I don't care how, you know, good the game is. I, I just have to force myself to turn it off. And, you know, maybe a few years ago when I had less responsibilities, I would have uh, I would have been more willing to keep it on. But, yeah, I, I will be interested to see if this actually has any uh, tangible impact on viewership. Yeah. You know, uh, not to go back to the well and quote Van Gundy and Jackson again, but uh, there was another question asked by uh, a writer at Barrett Sports Media at the very end of the conference call about uh, things that the NBA can do to evolve 
in the next deal. And Van Gundy said that he would try to get the games into a two-hour window, right? That is going to be important. Let's be real about attention spans. They're not what they used to be. Two and a half hours, you know, that's a long film. Uh, it's two and a half hours and a lot of ads. So that might be one of the reasons why you don't see this happen. Uh, but, you know, I mean, two hours, that's where the WNBA is. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned this last week with softball. And the reason why college softball is more valuable than college baseball, it's shorter. It does not require more of your time. I do think that, uh, you know, uh, to get it to within a two-hour window would be very, very beneficial. The flexibility that affords you is tremendous because then you can start the finals at 9 o'clock again and it'll end at 11, right? You know, uh, to me, there's just a, a lot of, I mean, there's just a lot of value to 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 trying to shorten it down. Uh, Van Gundy also said, uh, I cut back on halftime. I think it's a waste of time. Cut it down to like five minutes. Now, of course, that makes sense when you work for ESPN. If you work for TNT, we want halftime with TNT. I mean, I don't want five minutes. I want EJ, Kenny, and Charles. If you're telling me it's Greenberg and those guys, then yes, eliminate halftime altogether. But I want to see EJ, Kenny, Charles, and Shaq. Yeah, Van Gundy also had some interesting comments on uh, Richard Deitch's podcast um, earlier today saying if he wanted to get even more radical, he would eliminate free throws from the game. He would just give them the points on a shooting foul, move it right along. Yeah, that that would be something that would be more akin to what baseball is doing with some some of their more radical changes. Of course, I don't see that ever happening. Maybe uh five, 10 years in the future, if they see game times actually being a huge issue, they could look towards that. Uh, maybe maybe we'll get some, well, I think they've already experimented with it in the summer league, right? Or the G League as well. I don't think so. I'm not sure, but it's a great idea. Yeah. You know, look, this is, this. the rules of basketball were not handed down on stone tablets to Moses, right? You know, this is a game that was invented relatively recently and uh, there's nothing sacred about it. I mean, there's just absolutely nothing sacred about any of these uh, entertainment properties. So getting rid of free throws probably would be a valuable thing. It would change the game dramatically. Uh, you know, I mean, cutting down on fouls just generally. Uh, it, it's, it, it's like uh, traffic laws, you know. Why should you get pulled over for a broken taillight? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, why should you get uh, a foul for bumping somebody? I mean, I guess you want to protect the shooter, but we've got so much offense that I, I don't see any need to continue catering. Let's just get move the game along, speed it up. Yeah, and and we could certainly get into a larger conversation about officials in, in that area, but let's get to some viewership predictions, John. Um, Heat Nuggets... But let's say for game one, what do you expect? And then overall, given your expectation that this is only probably going to go around that five game mark, what's your yeah. total viewership prediction? Game one in 2021 on a Tuesday night in July. And that was a move update. So the NBA only moves up the start of the finals in adverse circumstances, a lockout year, the COVID years. And so they did move up the start of the finals in 21. So that actually, I would say, hurt the ratings because the ads kept saying, if I recall, you know, July 8 or whatever, and instead it was July 6. So game one in 2021, easily the least watched of that series, 8.7 million viewers, right? I would say for Miami-Denver, I'm going to go 9 million flat. 
I'm going to go 9 million flat, which would be ahead of the two bubble years or the bubble and, and the year after. And uh, it would be uh, slightly lower than Cleveland, San Antonio and New Jersey, San Antonio. I'm going to go 9 million flat for game one. And I'm going to say a uh, five game series that averages 9.7 million viewers. How about that? Let's get a best case scenario rating ceiling. If this game goes or the, if this series goes to game seven, what, what could a game seven garner here? I think, I mean, boy, we haven't had a game seven in any of these sports since COVID. So we, we you know, the last game seven in any of these sports was nationals Astros 15 million years ago. Um, I, you know, it's tough to tell. Uh, Heat Nuggets Game 7 of the NBA Finals on a Sunday night, Father's Day, out of home viewing. I think that could get to 16 million viewers, somewhere around there, 16, 17 million. Father's Day, uh, you know, competitive day on the sports calendar as well. So, you know, maybe some good lead-ins there. Yeah. All right. Um, Let's move it on to the Stanley Cup Finals here, John. Florida Panthers and Las Vegas Golden Knights. Not the darling TV matchup for the NHL either. Um, Some interesting notes on this one. It'll be simulcast on TNT, TBS, and True TV. Yeah. And that marks the first time the Stanley Cup will be on cable, or or solely on cable, I should specify, since 1994. What are your top-line thoughts for the Stanley Cup Finals? Yeah, well, not only the first cup final ever to air exclusively on cable, the first one where more than two games aired on cable since 1999. So, uh, you know, it'll be interesting. Uh, I don't think the ratings are going to be great because of the matchup and also because you're on three cable networks. But the, the simulcast will help. That will that will help a, a great deal. Uh, it's not going to be Ottawa, Anaheim. It's not going to be like that. Uh, it'll do... Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it might very well be a surprise because of that simulcast. Maybe the numbers come in reasonably, not close to last year, but, you know, I'll put it this way. I think it will comfortably outdo 2021 regardless of length. So my prediction for Nuggets Heat, because it'll be a short series, I believe it'll probably end up below Bucks Suns, which went six. Florida Vegas, regardless of length, I have beating Montreal, Tampa Bay two years ago. Uh, one of the worst possible finals matchups uh, that year. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that because, I mean, do I really think that TNT, TBS, and True TV are going to combine for at least 3.5 million viewers for any game of this series outside of a game seven? And that was what the top game did in, in 21. I don't know. It'll be tough. Uh, I'm going to say maybe an average of 2.2 million. No, you know what? 2 point. No, I'll stick with 2.2. I mean, I, I, it's tough. I, I have no idea. We, it's not like we have a lot of precedent for Florida, Vegas on TBS, TNT, and True TV. I, I don't know. I'm not going to be surprised no matter what, unless it does as well as last year. Then I'll be really surprised. Yeah. Yeah. On an earlier episode of uh, of this podcast, we mentioned how the new deal for the NHL kind of gave it a higher floor, but a lower ceiling. Um, taking a bigger picture look at how the Stanley Cup playoffs have gone this season, 
Do you think that's true? Uh, has that happened? Yes. Uh, I don't think you can deny that, although obviously the conference finals do make you question it a little bit. 1.3 million for Vegas-Dallas game three. That's a terrible number for a conference final game, given it's on ESPN. Uh, you know, this is not the NBCSN era. If you go back to the last regular playoffs on NBCSN, you know, San Jose-St. Louis conference final game three, 1.4 million. It's on NBCSN. There should never really be a circumstance where a conference final game on ESPN is trailing a conference final game on NBCSN. Uh, I do think that, you know, the NHL basically, the NBA ended up with a bad matchup in the finals from a ratings perspective, but every step along the way has gotten everything it wanted. LeBron and Steph in the playoffs at the same time, playing each other, a seven-game series of Boston, they've gotten everything to go right, and so the finals really won't hurt them that badly. For the NHL, ever since Boston went out, They've just everything that could go wrong from a ratings perspective has. And, you know, as a result, you do kind of question a little bit. We'll see what the overall average ends up being for the, for the, for the playoffs, but it'll be down from last year for certain. I mean, that is an absolute lock. Um, I, you know, you never know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but when you add in all of these cup final games are going to be down last year, wasn't just every game on ABC. Tampa Bay going for three straight, Colorado, a traditional team, two teams that have won before, you know, Florida, Vegas, it's going to have to be good. It's going to have to be really good. Either Florida or Vegas is going to be a Stanley Cup champion. That's a first. Uh, it'll, it'll be interesting, at least that, that, that much is uh, true. Something we haven't touched on with regards to Turner's um, NHL package is the studio. Um, of course, you know, Turner, very well-renowned for their NBA studio. Um, do you have any comments on how their NHL studio has kind of, you know, lived up to that? You know, they, they have some, some very big names on, on that, that panel. Well, you know, first let me shout out Tim Kylie, who just did his final Inside the NBA, the longtime producer of that show, and it is his vision that has influenced everything that Turner does. Turner makes studio shows in a way that nobody else seems to even try uh, to do. I mean, maybe some of those soccer shows. Every now and again, I see these social media clips of, I guess, Kate Abdo and three other people who I am not familiar with because I don't watch soccer, and they're having their hijinks, right? That's probably influenced by by Tim Kiley. Uh, but for the most part, you know, the ESPN version dominates, which is an angry person looks directly at the camera and states out their very, very well-rehearsed opinion for you in an attempt to get you riled up and angry uh, over sports, right? And look, the fact that Tim Kiley never did that, uh, the fact that Turner's approach has always been, even when it hasn't necessarily always been great, they're not perfect. You know, Charles says stuff all the time that, you know, is not great. But what they do is so much healthier than what ESPN and, and certainly FS1 do. So I want to shout out Tim Kiley for creating some of the only semi, and it's it's very good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's semi good, but I'm just saying everything else is so bad that Tim Kiley's stuff is the only semi-decent studio programming there is in all of sports, and it was excellent. I hope that they can continue uh, the level of quality going forward. 
had the opportunity to interview Tim Kiley many years ago. And what was interesting about that is that he said he wanted Shaq, obviously, who was still playing, but he also wanted Allen Iverson. He thought Allen Iverson would be good in the studio. Of course, that never happened. Uh, and, uh, but um, just uh, brilliant stuff from uh, a brilliant career for uh, somebody who's done better work in that space than anybody. So that leads you into the NHL show. So I never watched enough NHL to really like hate Mike Milbury or Pierre Maguire, but a lot of viewers really, you know, hated Mike Milbury. You know, if you look back at what Mike Milbury said that got him fired, Charles Barkley says stuff like that all the time. I mean, maybe not quite anymore, but like Charles' record of, you know, sexist jokes on the air compared to Mike Milbury's is a volume, right? So the fact that Mike Milbury got fired for that, to me, is an indication that people just really hated him and were waiting for the first opportunity they got to get rid of him, right? Uh, and uh, I don't know how fair that is necessarily because I didn't really feel that strongly about Milbury, but certainly when you watched NBC studio and it was Milbury and it was Pierre Maguire for a long time. In fact, for a lot of those years, it was just the two of them and they would travel to the side of the game and angrily debate each other in the style that ESPN has made so uh, sickeningly common. Right. And uh, I'm sure a lot of NHL fans hated that. And one of the reasons why I think Turner's studio is so well-received is that they don't do any of that stuff. This is, you know, and, and even the NBC holdovers that they have, you know, Liam McHugh, I mean, there was no light in his eyes when he worked for NBC. <laughs> he had no personality. I mean, it, it was, it, he, there was just nothing there. Uh, and Anson Carter, you know, was very bland at NBC. Both of them fit so much better. They both have a little bit more, not a little bit, a lot more, liveliness to them in the Turner environment. And I don't believe Kylie has worked on the NHL show, but obviously it is being done in his image, right? And so uh, that's why Turner is better than everybody in the studio. Everybody. Uh, they're better than Fox with Fox NFL Sunday, because even though Fox is kind of loose, all that stuff always seems more scripted and fake and less authentic than it does at Turner. There, there's nobody that does it like them. I, I've I've caught a little bit of uh you know the NHL on TNT the the studio show in between periods and, and that type of thing and I'm I'm more looking towards uh, Gretzky and and Paul Bizinet, uh because those are you know the names I I would know you know uh, as a casual hockey fan and the the criticism of Gretzky before he started his studio work was that he would just be kind of stiff. Um, not really have much to say, not have a personality. And I have not found that to be the case in what when I've watched, you know, he is opinionated and he has been, you know, seemingly loose and, and able to, you know, converse with with his other studio hosts pretty well. So um that caught my eye. And I, I do think it is very much in the in the ilk of um the NBA show. So props to TNT. They they seem to do do get it right. I would uh, I would know there is one other group of people that do a good studio show. That would be the uh, the PTI around the horn people. Who's the guy? There's a guy. Eric Rideholm. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> You'll probably be able to know his name. But the Eric Rideholm uh, studio show is the only thing that I would put in the same class as what Tim Kiley does. Uh, and I don't think anybody else uh, comes comes close to that. A lot of people, you know, they try to imitate it. You know, uh, 
I think imitation, you know, is better than nothing. It's it's better to imitate that style than to imitate the first take style. But you can always tell when it's authentic, and and it uh, you can always tell when it's inauthentic too. Yeah, the the Rideholm shows are, are very much a different brand of studio show, though they're not pre or post, right? right. So that's that happy hour time slot, and you know he's done shows outside of that that time slot as well, but um, a little bit different, uh, a little more wide ranging, I guess. Um, yeah. But still very, very good, you know, should be recognized. Yeah. All right, John, we don't have a full slate of ratings numbers today because of the holiday, but we do have the IndyCar number. Um, IndyCar was up 2% year over year, um, just over 5 million viewers on NBC. What are your takeaways from that? Well, of course, as always with NBC, they're including their, uh, you know, uh, streaming Peacock, you know, which I mean, obviously Peacock is pretty big at this point. It's a real factor, but uh, linear TV, TV only 4.7 million up slightly from last year's 4.6. Household rating was down from 2.69 to 2.65. This is not a particularly high rated Indy 500. In fact, if you take out the COVID year when it was in August, the second least watched on record. you know, hey, 4.7 million viewers for an IndyCar series race. You know, any F1 race gets that number and, you know, you're, you're, you're celebrating, right? Big, huge banners, mission accomplished, right? I'm sure whoever is running F1 would come out in the, uh, the flight suit just like George Bush did that day, right? Uh, you know, so it is worth noting that we ignore how strong the Indy 500 is every year while we are celebrating the Monaco Grand Prix or the Miami Grand Prix. And, you know, I mean, IndyCar gets bigger numbers than F1 on its best day every single year because of this race, because of the Indy 500. But of course, the Indy 500 is also a national tradition. It's an American tradition. It's tied with a holiday, tied into a holiday. Frankly, it's pretty incredible that it had 3.7 million in 2020. That might be a more impressive audience than anything that's come since. It's just, I mean, in 2020, it was just a random race in August with no fans. It's incredible that got 3.7 million that year. Frankly, a lot of those COVID era numbers in 2020 were not treated the way they should have been. You're talking about sports that are still averaging representative numbers of viewers months after their normal times of year, but I digress. Um, So look, I mean, it's not a great number historically, but, you know, 4.7 4.7 million viewers for auto racing is not bad. Uh, let me take a look here at uh, what NASCAR has done this year. Obviously, the Daytona 500 is higher. One of one of the few things that I look back at, and I'm really bummed I screwed up in terms of not catching it, a couple of years ago when Daytona had a horrible, horrible year uh, because of the rain, the Indy 500 actually had more viewers than the Daytona 500 in 2021. Wow. And I didn't even think to check on that because it never happens. Didn't realize it till the end of the year. I'm putting together my end of the year list. And I'm like, wait a second. The Indy 500 beat the Daytona 500 this year. I didn't even realize that. But uh, certainly this year's Daytona 500, 8.17 million. Uh, outside of that, no NASCAR race has had as many viewers as the Indy 500. Uh, so it's Daytona number one, Indy number two. Then I guess Talladega for NASCAR three and the Auto Club 500 at four. So, you know, all of that is to say, if you're getting the second biggest auto racing audience of the year, I think you take, you gladly take that. And uh, in this era, 4.7 million viewers, you know, uh, NBC's biggest hit is probably Night Court, which is just sad to say, 
you know, how often is Night Court getting that kind of an audience in prime time uh, over a half hour, much less IndyCar sustaining it over an entire afternoon? Yeah, yeah it was shaping up to be a pretty, you know, a banner day in, in motorsports. Uh, you know, we had the Monaco Grand Prix in the morning and then the Indy 500 and then the Coca-Cola 600. But that was um, unfortunately weather delayed until Monday. Um, which I guess if you're NASCAR, you know, if you're going to get pushed to a Monday, you might as well get pushed to Memorial Day when a lot of people do have off work. But um, so that kind of ruined that, you know, trifecta there. But um, seems to be a good day for motorsports. We don't have that F1 number yet or the or the Coca-Cola 600 number. But um, yeah, I mean, when it comes down to it, uh, one thing for sure is that the state of broadcast television and cable obviously has gotten to a level where it's almost impossible for a sporting event to really do badly. Because if you look around, I don't have obviously Sunday's numbers. The most watched show on all of television Friday had 2.2 million viewers. It was Dateline. Dateline was the most watched show. There were no NBA or NHL playoff games. Dateline had 2.2 million viewers on NBC. The number two program was The Five on Fox News at 2.19 million. And after that, WWE SmackDown at 2.15 or 2.16. You know, this is crisis mode for TV. If Dateline is the most watched show on any night, it's time to shut the whole thing down, Okay. Uh, you know, this is getting, this is getting, uh, unbelievable. And again, it's going to be worse in like five years, far worse in five years than it is now. Uh, I don't know how bad these numbers are going to get over the summer. I think the numbers are going to get so bad that you could probably justify putting the pro bowlers tour in prime time because it would do better than some of these reruns are going to do there. I mean, with a writer's strike going on, there's a writer's strike and the ratings are awful. So let me go uh, quickly into something that I wanted to mention here. The NBA's new media rights deal is going to be negotiated in the next year. ESPN and ABC and Turner's uh, exclusive negotiating window begins in March, according to The Athletic. This is a writer's strike year. The NBA wants more games on broadcast television. Now, you know, David Stern uh, was a very savvy commissioner. Adam Silver is someone who uh, Tony Kornheiser has sometimes uh, implied is not a living, breathing commissioner. Uh, and look, the reality of the matter is the NBA needs to use its leverage, which it does have. The NBA has the ability to say, we're about to negotiate a new deal. There's a writer strike going on where ABC's primetime lineup in the fall has built in reruns of Abbott Elementary, and that's the only scripted programming they have. Everything else is reality TV, not even quality reality TV, not that I think there is any, but like just utter and complete summer level nonsense in the fall. We want an ABC primetime game in the opening week of the, of the regular season. That opening week, we want either the Wednesday or the Friday, ABC has to have at least one game, right? We want, you know, uh, Obviously, with the Christmas schedule, the ABC can't carry five games on Christmas this year. So find other places. You know, you can work around the NFL. The NFL's not on every night of the week. In a rider strike year, if I'm the NBA, I say, you know, maybe I want 
you know, ESPN, one of their top games every year is the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. Maybe that's an ABC night. Maybe you give those uh, two games to ABC, right? But the NBA better be knocking down the door of Jimmy Pitaro and saying, we want more games on ABC this year. If you want to maintain the kind of relationship with us, then you'd better play ball. We know that you don't have any programming. We've seen your prime time lineup for the fall. So we want opening week. We want the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. You know, use your leverage if you're the NBA because there's nothing. And that, that doesn't just go for the NBA. It goes for everybody. Anybody who has a deal with Fox, which at this point is baseball. But if you're baseball, I want every night of the week, like it's 2003, I want Fox carrying a division series game in prime time. I've seen what the ratings are for The Simpsons and Bob's Burgers, and those are going to be the only things that Fox has to air in the fall because they're animated and are done a year in advance, right? We've seen what the ratings are for that. This is a big opportunity here for live sports. TV is dying rapidly. And with the writer's strike this fall, and really from here all the way through the end of the year, whenever the strike is resolved, the programming is going to be awful and the ratings even worse. So I, th I, I say, if you're the leagues, exercise all the leverage you can. Because at this point, like I said, I can see an argument for bowling, bull riding, the WNBA, you know, everything all the way up, in, including like the Argentine Premier League, right? You can put anything you want in prime time, and it'll probably do better than what they're currently hearing. You're right. I mean... It's it's going to be a renaissance for for unscripted television, live sports, all of that stuff. Um, you know, who knows how long this writer's strike is going to last, but it will have a tangible impact on on live sports. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a really good point. Okay, John, we've covered the NBA, covered the NHL, got a little motorsports in. Do you have anything else you'd like to uh, touch on before we go? No, I think uh, I think we're good. Uh, we're going to move on now to the NBA Finals. It's going to be an ugly Finals from a ratings perspective. That's what I'm anticipating. But it's not the end of the world. It happens. And you know, as far as Denver and Miami go, uh, you win, you become a draw. Unless you're San Antonio in the Duncan era, that never, of course, happened. They they never started to draw. But you know, uh, it, we'll see. I mean, if you can win a championship and do so in an entertaining fashion, the viewers will follow. All right, so next week we'll come back. We'll talk NBA Finals ratings, Stanley Cup Final ratings, and uh, looking forward to that. Uh, and uh, if again, if you have not subscribed already, please do subscribe to the Sports Media Watch podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.